The title of uh, Calvin's book, um, Institutes of the Christian Religion, uh, we're so used to talking about Calvin's Institutes that it sounds right uh, to us, but uh, if you stop to think for a moment, it, it does seem like a strange name for a book, doesn't it? Institutes. Uh, the singular, the Latin uh, institutio, was used in uh, the 1536 edition of the Institutes. It's the first edition. We'll talk about these different editions. But uh, the translation uh, has almost always been plural in English. So rather than talking about the Institute of the Christian Religion, we talk about the Institutes of the Christian Religion. But... uh, What the Latin word means is not exactly what the word institute means to uh, today. Uh, Institute today is like a school or uh, perhaps a seminar or something like that. It's related to that, but uh, the word simply means instruction. Instruction in the Christian religion. Or maybe something like manual of Christian doctrine, or the medieval term that was almost always used was summa, summa theologiae, Thomas Aquinas' summary of theology. Calvin uses the word summa in his text, but he doesn't use it for his title. So the title uh, is uh, simply instruction in Christian doctrine or in Christianity, I think uh, if we were trying to uh, modernize the title a bit, we'd say something like basic instruction in the Christian faith. But um, we're used to institutes of the Christian religion, and so uh, that's what we'll, we'll use. Importance of the institutes. I'm uh, teaching a um, Sunday school class um, at uh, Central. It's the seminary on Sunday class. And um, my wife's a member of Central, so whenever I'm not preaching elsewhere, I attend Central. But I started the Sunday school class at Central a couple of weeks ago. And uh, these are lay people um, studying uh, the Institutes. I'm not having them read all of this. That would uh, intimidate them uh, uh, and I'd end up with no students. But uh, there's a nice uh, abridged edition uh, that uh, Donald McKim has uh, come out with. Uh, it's a little paperback. And it doesn't get everything in, of course, but uh, it uh, includes the, the major um, material of the institutes. We meet at 8 o'clock Central on Sunday morning. It's going for 13 weeks. <coughs> And I began two weeks ago uh, with this question. Why would anybody, it was a very cold morning, why would you, why would anybody want to get up and be at church 8 o'clock in the morning to study a book written in Latin, written 500 years ago? (laughs) That's what they were doing. And that's... uh, what you're doing too. So you have to give uh, an answer to that. 
Um, and I've included uh, two thoughts here as an answer to that question, importance of the institutes. Two quotations, one from John T. McNeil, uh, who is the editor of our version of the institutes. Uh, McNeil says that Calvin's book holds a place in the short list of books that have notably affected the course of history. And um, that's true, and I think you can make a case for that. Then one reason to study Calvin's Institutes is that you're studying one of the most important books in history. There are not, not many books uh, like this. Short list of books that have notably affected the course of history. So to be an educated person, know something about history, to be able to um, talk about one of the most important books that have affected the course of history, um, we need to, to read the book. So that's one answer why it's uh, worthwhile uh, to do this. Uh, the second is a quotation from Stephen Osmet, historian at uh, Harvard University. He says it's the Reformation's most eloquent theological statement. So not only is it uh, a book that has affected the course of history, but it's the most uh, eloquent, most important, most complete statement of um, theology from the 16th century, century of the Reformation. It's not the only theology from the 16th century, but Stephen Osmond says it's the most eloquent and um, I would add the most important. Luther, as you know, did not write a systematic theology. Luther wrote a lot, but uh, Luther's writings were never organized systematically. Uh, his uh, colleague and young friend, Philip Melanchthon, did write systematic theology. It's called the Loci Communis. That's a medieval Latin term that was often used for books like that, common places, we would translate it. Uh, Melanchthon wrote that in 1521. That's 15 years uh, before the first edition of Calvin's Institutes. Calvin, uh, not even, not even a Protestant, 1521. In fact, he was just a little boy <laughs> in 1521 comes on a bit later, was born in 1509. So he's, he's part of the next uh, generation of reformers. But uh, when you look at uh, Melanchthon's Loci Communis, which is a significant uh, work and does um, summarize and embody Luther's theological thinking, uh, Luther loved it. He said it um, should be included in the canon. You know, Luther was kind of weak on canonicity. <laughs> but he said, uh, maybe not in the canon, but uh, if it's not St. Paul, it's next to St. Paul. And that was because Melanchthon was putting forth Luther's theology in the Los Communis. But uh, compared to Calvin's Institutes, uh, it is um, uh, so far inferior. It's not well organized. Uh, it doesn't really have the power of uh, Calvin's uh, Institutes. 
Um, Zwingli did not, did not write a systematic theology. He did write a commentary on true and false religion, but it uh, doesn't have the breadth of Calvin's work. came out in 1525. The closest that we have to a systematic theology on the reform side, which would uh, parallel uh, the Los Communis of uh, Melanchthon, is uh, the Sommer, uh, the summary of um, theology uh, written by Calvin's friend, William Farrell, which also came out in 1525. But uh, Farrell, great preacher and a kind of dynamic Christian evangelist, sometimes called a hot gospeler, <laughs> um, was not uh, gifted um, with Calvin's gifts. Dr. Chapel yesterday in Chapel was talking about different gifts in the in the church and how we we rejoice in in that and we rejoice in uh, in Farrell's uh, ability certainly, uh, but uh, we also rejoice in Calvin's ability and Farrell did that. Later, um, when Calvin's um, Institutes came out, Farrell wrote his friends and said, "Don't read my book anymore. Read Calvin's." Uh, this is a book you need to read. So Farrell could uh, get things done, plant a church, and uh, stir up people, but uh, it took Calvin to uh, come alongside of him and uh, provide the uh, organization and uh, the stability and the theology that uh, we see in the institutes of the Christian religion. Okay, I won't go further with that. Um, I think at Covenant Seminary people know that Calvin's Institutes is important, and um, so I won't um, keep making that point. Out in the church, or just out talking to people in general, it's a point you have to make because they're not convinced that there's anything worth reading in an old book like this. Let's go on to uh, general characteristics of the Institutes. I've taken uh, some words here to uh, summarize the Institutes, beginning with the word biblical, priority of Scripture. I think as you read and study this book, you'll see that up front is, is the Bible. In fact, the other day in Sunday School at Central, I was lecturing on knowledge of God in Calvin, which um, I'll do next Tuesday here in more detail. And uh, one of the women in the class after a while said, well, this sounds like the book of Romans to me. And I said, well, it's what it is. <laughs> uh, what Calvin is doing is uh, basing his thinking on Scripture. And uh, as Dr. Battles says, Calvin is a scriptural theologian first and a user of philosophy logic, rhetoric, all human tools of organization, only second. Sometimes people get the idea, put forth the idea that this is a very logical, iron-clad logic system and that everything is forced into a a logical uh, framework. But uh, that really misunderstands what Calvin is doing. Uh, He's really attempting to uh, use scripture uh, 
to set forth a theology that would be um, organized and systematic, but basically scriptural. His use of scripture is um, astounding. There are probably, well, there are 7,000, almost 7,000 references to scripture uh, in the Institutes. And um, in the back of volume two, there's a biblical references index. So you might note that there are a number of uh, indices uh, here uh, that help us in in various ways. But uh, just thumbing through this, you'll see uh, those 7,000 references uh, to the Institutes. John T. McNeil, in our introduction, says that Calvin's readiness in bringing scripture passages to bear upon each point of argument is astounding and has perhaps never been surpassed. And uh, to quote uh, one of my favorite writers uh, on Calvin, uh, the old Southern Presbyterian theologian R.C. Reed, who taught at the old um, Columbia Seminary in South Carolina, wrote a little book called The Gospel as Taught by Calvin. I'll show you a reference to that in a moment. <laughs> but uh, Dr. Reed said Calvin was a wholesale plagiarist from Moses and David, Isaiah and Ezekiel, Jesus and John, Peter and Paul. <laughs> that was where Calvin's plagiarism was coming in. He was just bringing in all of this scripture. And Calvin uses uh, all of Scripture. It's really remarkable how adept he is in Old Testament as well as New Testament, uh, in the prophets as well as the uh, poetical books, in uh, the epistles as well as uh, in the Gospels. He has a a working canon which is as as big as the Bible itself. Uh, Most of us tend to feel more at home in some part of the Bible, preach more on certain sections of the Bible, don't have the the breadth of um, Calvin in being able to um, handle well uh, all of the Bible. Priority of Scripture, use of Scripture, exegesis of Scripture. Sometimes I've read books um, on theology or on something in which uh, the writer will make a point and then in parentheses at the end of the sentence have about 15 Bible quotations. And I get the feeling after a while that that's all there just sort of to impress somebody. That may not be the motive of the writer, but um, I don't get that feeling with Calvin. When Calvin uses a scripture text, he's using it appropriately. He's using it well. He's not just building up a lot of text in order to um, uh, cause people to think that he is being biblical in his uh, teaching. We not only need to add text, but we need to know what those texts say and um, exegete them appropriately and well. And that's what Calvin does. Uh, The scripture texts are not uh, decorative. They uh, They are 
uh, for a real purpose. Uh, Warfield says that Calvin was the creator of a genuine exegesis. And for that reason, uh, his commentaries, um, even today, are very valuable. If you read commentaries from medieval theologians and from even some Reformation-era theologians, you'll find them stilted, old-fashioned, not too useful. But uh, that is not uh, true of Calvin. Uh, Some people think that uh, Calvin became such a masterful exegete of the text of Scripture uh, because his study, uh, after he completed his study at the Sorbonne, which was a, a degree in, we would say, the liberal arts, his study then was in law. He studied law in two universities in France um, at Orléans and at Bourges and the study of law at this time was more advanced in terms of understanding and setting forth the true meaning of a text than the study of theology was and so uh, Calvin learned from uh, his law professors to approach a text uh, directly and to uh, uh, interpret it um, within the uh, linguistic and historical parameters of its context and to apply it. And uh, that's what we need to do with Scripture. That's what he did with Scripture. One of the most recent, the most recent biography of Calvin uh, by the French uh, historian Cotre says Calvin had a French passion for clarity reinforced by his legal education. I don't know about French passion for clarity, but Dr. Cotre says that the French have a passion for clarity, so I will accept that, but uh, certainly uh, reinforced by his uh, legal Uh, education. We can thank God for that development in Calvin's life because that uh, prepared him for uh, the kind of uh, work that he would do uh, with the text of Scripture. Textual criticism. Uh, Calvin doesn't always get this right because he is 16th century and we're 21st century, so textual criticism has advanced uh, considerably since Calvin's time, but for his time, uh, he's a pretty able textual critic. Uh, he, he knows the good manuscripts from the not-so-good manuscripts. And he's able to uh, argue um, which word is the best in a particular text or sentence. And uh, we had, if not always, trust him there, I feel... Uh, fairly certain uh, that Calvin is going to come out on the right side of an issue of textual criticism. And then a word about uh, Calvin's commentaries. I've already said they're still valuable and useful uh, to us today. Uh, Calvin first wrote the Institutes, first editions, 1536. He wrote it with uh, the purpose to have it serve mainly as an introduction 
uh, to his biblical commentaries. So in one sense, his life work, he felt, would be to write commentaries on all of the books of the Bible. He didn't complete that. A um, few New Testament books, some of the smaller books he did not do, and uh, several Old Testament books he did not complete. He was writing uh, on Ezekiel, his commentary on Ezekiel, uh, when he died. I think he got to chapter 22. And he was very, very ill. He was only 55, but he was very ill most of his life. suffered greatly from all kinds of physical problems. To read his letters to his doctors is a hair-raising experience because Calvin describes his symptoms in painful detail. And, of course, the doctors in those days didn't really know what to do about almost anything, but uh, Calvin was was dying and suffering uh, greatly. Um, He had his friends um, help him to to sit up in his bed, uh, and he carried on with his uh, Ezekiel commentary. Uh, Some of those friends felt that he was uh, overdoing it and said, you know, you need to rest. And Calvin's reply was, what? Would you have the Lord come and find me idle? Well, maybe Calvin should have rested. He was a kind of workaholic. (laughs) And um, even though it's inspiring to think about uh, Calvin dying and writing to the very end, in fact, uh, an unfinished sentence in that Ezekiel commentary mark, almost the last day of Calvin's life. But... um, Commentaries were, were important to him. And uh, his goal in all this was, um, I think in the commentaries, comprehensive brevity. And you look at the whole shelf full of Calvin's commentaries and you wonder about the brevity. But the um, Bible is a big book, and when you start reading uh, in those commentaries, uh, you realize that um, Calvin was successful in what he he did. Uh, In fact, as you compare his work to others, uh, you see that point being made. Uh, Calvin's commentary on Genesis is one volume, admittedly a pretty large volume, uh, but uh, Luther wrote eight volumes on Genesis. And uh, Calvin has a single commentary, single volume on Romans. Uh, His friend uh, Bucer, Martin Bucer, wrote four volumes on Romans. And uh, when Calvin was writing his commentary on Romans, uh, he introduced it uh, this way. He said, Bucer is too long to be read in haste and too high to be easily understood by the low and those who do not consider things too closely. So Bucer is fine if you've got a lot of time (laughs) and if you're smart. But Calvin says, uh, my commentary is, is briefer. Uh, you can read it uh, more quickly. And uh, if you are uh, not the kind of uh, uh, person uh, who can follow uh, things too closely, um, you're better off with me. Uh, Calvin often uh, made the point that it's good to be brief. Don't go on too long about things. 
Um, one of my students a few years ago made a bookmark for me with a quotation from Calvin's Institutes, which says, By nature, I love brevity. Well, that's uh, interesting, but when you discover that quote is found on page 685 of the Institutes, <laughs> uh, you begin to wonder about the brevity of Calvin. But uh, I keep that bookmark to remind me that Calvin thought he was being brief anyway. Okay, let's come to the word theological. Alice McGrath talks about the Institutes as highly systemized and structured theology. So we really have to add the word uh, theological to the word uh, biblical. What uh, Calvin wants to do is to produce an orderly arrangement of biblical themes. And uh, he, he struggles with that. Well, how do you put together uh, the message of the Bible? In fact, Calvin begins in 1536 with his first edition and goes through various revisions, does not find himself satisfied until 1559. He says, at last, I've I figured it out as to uh, how to arrange the material. It's not that the ideas are changing or the theology is changing, but the arrangement, as I'll point out in a few minutes, uh, is changing. So orderly arrangement of biblical themes. Some people have spent a lot of time uh, trying to discern if Calvin had a central theme, what's this book all about? What is the central theme? Some have suggested sovereignty of God, decrees of God. Others have suggested Christ or union with Christ or something else as the central theme of the Institutes. But I think uh, Calvin scholars uh, now are agreed, by and large, that we really don't have to look for a central theme. Calvin doesn't have one idea that he is uh, putting forth. It's not even the covenant as important as that is for Calvin. We'll get into that. Was he a covenant theologian or not? He doesn't take one idea and say, this is how I'm going to structure theology. He actually starts in the very first sentence by saying almost uh, all of our wisdom is composed of two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. That's not exactly a central theme, but that's the kind of uh, overarching description of um, what Calvin will set out to do in the Institutes. Dr. Dowie, in one of his books on Calvin, Knowledge of God, in the Theology of Calvin, talks about clarity of individual themes, incomprehensibility of their interrelations. And I think that pretty well captures what we find here. 
Calvin is very concerned to be very clear about themes of the Bible. But he is not concerned to always explain how these themes can interrelate. In fact, sometimes he just stops, says, I can't go any further, because he thinks the Bible doesn't go any further. And in those moments, the way I say it is he sings the doxology, praises God for the wisdom of God. His judgments are past finding out. Because he doesn't really force together all of these themes. He is very clear and comprehensive in developing the themes, but he will allow them uh, to stand um, side by side, even if he cannot totally reconcile, say, human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Another uh, point uh, that I'd like to make here under theological is what uh, Battles calls antithetical structuring. And what Battles means by that is that uh, Calvin, as he deals with different topics, will say, now this is what uh, the Bible teaches. This is what we should believe. But then he will oppose that with, and this is what we should not believe. This is wrong. This is uh, false. So there's that antithetical structuring uh, in uh, the institutes that Battles um, deals with in some detail in his analysis. In other words, Calvin will contrast the truth as he sees it with Roman Catholic teaching or with Anabaptist teaching, or with Osiander, or with somebody. And that means that uh, the Institutes uh, is a polemical uh, document. But I think uh, even though that is, is true, we find Calvin saying something like this too. Um, It ought to be enough simply to state the truth and um, then move on to something else. And that's what Calvin loves to do. But uh, he says, um, because of false teaching, we can't do that. So he finds himself required to not only state the truth, but to attack uh, false teaching. Calvin is, is polemical. Uh, but he doesn't uh, rejoice in polemics. He doesn't enjoy it as much as he does setting forth the truth positively, but uh, he feels that to be faithful, Christians um, have to say not only this is right, but they have to say also this is wrong. I was reading a sermon by Dr. Gresham Machen yesterday on Galatians, Paul in Galatians, and uh, it was called The Man Who Could Say No. That's Paul, the man who could say no. Something's wrong in Galatia, and Paul would say no. So we need to say yes, but we also 
sadly, need to say no. And we get that in the Institutes. Next point, restraint. Uh, Calvin doesn't answer all the questions. Sometimes uh, people that uh, think um, Institutes is a book of great uh, theological logic are disappointed when they actually begin to read it because things they thought um, would be answered or not uh, answered. Warfield says, Whither the Bible took him, thither he went, where scriptural declarations failed him, there he stopped short. And I think that uh, perhaps the best place to find uh, Calvin expressing this in his own words is in 321.4 where he says we should not investigate what the Lord has left hidden. Some things we don't know about. God hasn't chosen to tell us about. And so we shouldn't pry into those things. But we should not neglect what he has brought into the open. So we go as far as Scripture goes, uh, and then we stop. Calvin wants to avoid excessive ingratitude, he says. That is, we can be ungrateful if we don't go as far as the Bible goes. He wants to go as far as the Bible goes. And Calvin doesn't uh, think that he necessarily has the last word on this. He, at times, will urge his readers to go further than he goes, if they can, in their understanding of the Bible. When he's talking about the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, he said, I urge my readers not to confine their mental interest within these two narrow limits. Now, after we read Calvin for a hundred pages of the Lord's Supper, we wonder if anything else could possibly be said about it. But he says, don't confine yourself within these uh, two narrow limits, but strive to rise much higher than I can lead you. So his goal is not to say, here it is, this is the last word. But this is the best I can do. And if you can go further uh, in the scripture, then you must go further. So avoid excessive ingratitude. That's just, we don't use what we've got. So we can't be grateful to God for it. But also avoid excessive curiosity. Calvin hates curiosity. You know, somewhere we'll see him bring up that uh, famous story from Augustine when a student asked an old man what was God doing before he created the heavens and the earth. And the old man said he was making hell for the curious. <laughs> and Augustine really doesn't like that answer. But Calvin is kind of sympathetic toward that answer. <laughs> so he doesn't really like theological curiosity. He says that's to get into a labyrinth, a maze. 
you get into these questions that are just curious questions that we don't have any way of answering, and you get into this maze. You know what a maze is, a labyrinth? You get lost in there. So avoid excessive curiosity, which the labyrinth for him is a picture of human attempt uh, to search out God beyond the word. And Calvin advocates what he calls a learned ignorance. Now notice both words, learn ignorance. Not an ignorant ignorance, but uh, a learn ignorance. That's where we come out after we've done everything that we can. We come out with a learn ignorance. I'm sometimes rather astounded to think that we give students, we give you a degree that says Master of Divinity. Master of Divinity, MDiv. Uh, Maybe we should change it to MLI, Master of Learned Ignorance, (laughs) when you graduate. That would be more in keeping with Calvin's thought. Calvin doesn't answer all the questions. He takes us as far as he can, and then he stops in wonder uh, before the mystery. There are examples of that in 159, related to the doctrine of God. 321.1, related to the doctrine of election. 4.17.7, related to the Lord's Supper. In many places where Calvin says, it's as far as I can go. And what we need to do now is worship, not uh, answer questions that we can't answer. Next point, accommodation. Calvin's theological treatment is orderly, it's antithetical, it shows proper restraint, and it also illustrates the principle of accommodation. Now, what that is, and it's an idea that appears before Calvin, uh, but uh, Calvin certainly picks up on it and uses it, is the concept that God accommodates himself in his word to the level of our understanding. I think it goes back as far as Origen, who suggests that God faced much the same problem in addressing sinful humanity as a human father or a human mother uh, would face in trying uh, to communicate to a small child. Now, it's a challenge, you know. My daughter and son-in-law and their little um, one-year-old baby, Ian, visited us last weekend. They live in Chicago. We had Ian's birthday here. It was kind of fascinating to see John and Isabel trying to communicate to Ian, who's just one year old, things that he should not do and how to do that and how to try to get through to him why. Well, it was not easy. <laughs> it was not easy. So God 
was communicating uh, to us, and he accommodates himself to human capacity. If you want an article on that, uh, Dr. Battles wrote uh, one called God Was Accommodating Himself to Human Capacity, uh, discussing this point uh, in uh, John Calvin. Uh, Many examples in the Institutes have given some references there in which uh, God accommodates himself. Or, as uh, we'll see when we come to uh, Calvin's doctrine of Scripture, uh, God lisps when he speaks to us. Or, we could translate it, God talks baby talk. So, the Bible is God's baby talk. I mean, God could have uh, given a book uh, that uh, we could not possibly have begun to understand. I mean, the baby talk is hard enough. <laughs> and you come to seminary and learn Greek and Hebrew and exegesis and try to learn how to interpret uh, the baby talk. But um, it could have been impossible. It's a challenge now, but at least it is possible. So we'll see Calvin using uh, this um, frequently uh, in the Institutes, the principle of accommodation. And Calvin says it really goes beyond God coming down to us, to our level, to speak to us in stories, poems, parables, things that we can grasp. But we must, this is not in the Institutes, this is in Calvin's commentary on Romans, we must therefore consider what questions each is able to bear and accommodate our doctrine to the capacity of the individual. That's an application to homiletics or to counseling. You see, just as God accommodated himself to our level, Calvin says we accommodate ourselves to the level of the people uh, that uh, we're called to teach. It's very possible, it's all too possible for a seminary graduate to go out and teach and preach and nobody will have the slightest idea of what you're talking about unless you learn to accommodate what you learn now uh, to the level of the people that you're to serve. Rhetorical and devotional. The uh, time is slipping by, so we may not get through all of this today, but I can do some of it uh, next time too. Uh, by rhetorical, we mean this. Calvin does not embrace the scholastic form of presentation. If you want to know what that is like, just read uh, the first few pages of Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theologiae. There you get scholastic, scientific theology. Calvin is much more in the mode of humanist rhetoric. He can be very critical of the scholastics. And we find Calvin himself using the principles of humanism. Now, that's not modern secular humanism, but that is um, 16th century uh, literary uh, rhetorical humanism. And what rhetorical means uh, here is that 
language is to be used in a way uh, that will move, persuade. In other words, it's not enough just to set forth the truth. It must be set forth in a powerful way, a moving way, an eloquent way. And uh, we'll find passages of of great uh, eloquence uh, in the Institutes, where Calvin is using his rhetorical skills learned from uh, his humanist training in the arts and in law in order to persuade. He's not just showing off, displaying his uh, ability here, uh, but... uh, He wants uh, words to come alive and become powerful and mighty in their use. Let me just read uh, a few sentences from his uh, prefatory address. It's found on page 13 in the Institutes. For what is more consonant with faith than to recognize that we are naked of all virtue? in order to be clothed by God, that we are empty of all good to be filled by him, that we're slaves of sin to be freed by him, blind to be illumined by him, lame to be made straight by him, weak to be sustained by him, to take away from us all occasion for glory, that he alone may stand forth gloriously, and we glory in him. Now, you kind of get the force of those words, don't you? I mean, he could say that in a much more pedantic way, but uh, he builds up um, the power of his utterance uh, by uh, the beauty and power of his words. Somebody has said that Calvin invented the short sentence, and uh, Calvin does write uh, in a very, comparatively speaking, crisp, modern form, not a lot of subordinate clauses, sentences move on nicely, short sentences, they might sometimes look long to us, but uh, they're not uh, nearly as long as the the paragraph long sentences that you'll find in some of his uh, contemporaries. And uh, Calvin values uh, figurative language, he values uh, illustrations, He values anything uh, that he can use in order to set forth the truth as powerfully and as clearly as he can. Okay, we'll have to stop there. We still have the word devotional to look at and then the purpose of the institutes and uh, a little bit more that we can uh, get into uh, the beginning of uh, class on Tuesday. Okay, thank you. We'll see you on Tuesday.